And he said, so I stepped several feet away from the tracks and turned around just as the train whooshed right by him. And by this point, he said he already felt that God was telling him he had a higher purpose. He starts telling people that God has told him he's going to be emperor of the world. Everybody knew it at school. People are calling him the emperor, as they did, by the way, in prison. Capital Genesis is Frank's economic plan for world domination, how he's going to start a massive company and start gobbling up other companies in order to slowly take over countries and continents and ultimately the world. And she says, this is who's doing your, your legal work. And I went, yeah, this is who's doing my legal work. And she said, you've got a mentally incompetent inmate, disbarred attorney doing your legal work. And I went, yeah. She said, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I said, well, it does seem crazy. I said, but you're here, aren't you? I said, all of the sane attorneys that I talked to on the street told me I could not force the government to reduce my sentence. And yet you're here. So he may be crazy, but he's getting results. Hey, this is Matt Cox, and I'm going to be continuing the Frank Amadeo story. This is the genesis of Frank Amadeo's um, belief that he, I hate to say, I hate to say delusion, um, because you don't know, you don't know what's going to happen. The genesis of Frank Amadeo's belief that he is going to be emperor of the world. So Frank Amadeo was raised by, I love it, raised by his mother and father. Okay, no, shit. Okay, so Frank Amadeo was raised um, by his parents. They were uh, devout Roman Catholics. He was born with a rare um, abnormality and uh, some kind of a, there was something wrong with his, um, I want to say his digestive tract or something. So he, when he got to be, I forget how old, you know, whatever, old enough to be operated on, he was operated on by the doctors and they had told his parents that there was a good chance that uh, he would not survive. And he said that his parents sat in the hospital visitation, you know, waiting room. They prayed to God that he would, would survive the surgery, which the doctor said there was a very good chance he probably wouldn't. He did survive the surgery. Obviously Um, he improved Uh, it, it, corrected whatever the abnormality was in his digestive tract or it was something to do with his, I, I forget exactly um, what it was. I, I don't have that memorized. And as a matter of fact, Frank, when he told me, he didn't remember the exact name of the condition. He was just a child. But as he got, he got older, several things happened that in his mind um, allowed, were, were issues that had occurred where he should have been, uh, he should have died. One was that surgery. And he believes it was divine intervention that saved him um, from dying on the operating table. The next one is he, as a child, like two, three years old, wandered away from his daycare. 
And he ended up wandering into the street and walked down the street. And it just so happened that a good Samaritan saw him in the middle of a, of a street and ran out and picked him up and actually knew where his parents were and dropped him off hours later. So he wanders away. Keep in mind, this isn't like now, like there weren't Amber Alerts and those types of things. Like this is back in the in the 50s, right? So he was how much older than me? Well, early 60s. In the early 60s, there's no cell phones. There's probably half the country didn't even have a, a landline. So he wanders away from his daycare. Maybe they called the police. Maybe they didn't. I don't know. What I do know is he said a couple hours later, um, a man showed up with him as a two or three year old and dropped him off at his parents' house. Like they they knew who he was, picked him up, waited for his family to come home, and then showed up and said, "Hey, by the way, we found your kid walking around in the middle of the street." Dropped him off. The next thing that happened was he. I think he said he was a. Uh, five or six years old, and he was walking on the railroad tracks, balance, kind of doing a little balancing act while he's just walking on the tracks, right? As a little kid. And he said he didn't hear anything. He didn't, there was no warning. He said, I didn't hear a whistle. I didn't hear a train, anything. But he said a voice, and and I, I had asked him when I was writing the book, like, was this the first time you heard this voice? You know, and he said he couldn't remember the exact first time. It was a feeling initially. But he said, literally, I, I, this was the first time he really felt like he heard a voice say, get off of the tracks. And he said, so I stepped several feet away from the tracks and turned around just as the train whooshed right by him. He said, I never heard it. I didn't feel it. I didn't anything. Just something said, get off the tracks. And he said, I took two, three steps away, turned around, and it literally just whooshed right by him. He said, I should have been killed. When he was nine years old, Frank had an aunt, right? So his, I want to, I want to say it's whatever, his mother or father's um, sister. He was his favorite aunt. She used to take him with him, uh, with her all over the place. She came to him and said, he's nine years old. Frank, I'm going to the mall, whatever, a shopping excursion of some kind, um, Will you cut? Do you want to come with me? And because he wanted to stay and watch some TV program, right? Like he he loves um, he loves Star Trek, by the way. So he I don't know what the program is. I don't re- recall. I, I probably wrote it in the book, but anyway. So he said, "Oh no, he really wanted to watch this program." So he stayed and didn't go. His aunt never came home. She, her body was found, uh, I want to say a couple days later, in a dumpster behind the store, one of the stores they were going to go to. She'd been strangled to death. Turned out, he later found out, when he got older and heard what had happened to her, because he's only nine at the time. Um, she was engaged to be married, and just before she was to be married within, whatever, weeks, her... Her husband's best friend strangled her to death and threw her body into a dumpster. Um, it turns out that I believe that the her sorry her husband her fiance her fiance's best friend strangled her and threw her into the dumpster. Um, 
I believe what he had said was that the his belief was that the the fiance's best friend was kind of like a um he he had a fixation on the on her fiance and felt she was a rival um whether it was a a, a homosexual situation or want uh, or or situation I don't know but he felt she was a rival and that she was going to come in between he and his relationship with her fiance and he strangled her to death and killed her now according to Frank Frank says had he been with her he believes he would have been killed too so uh w- you know with that said those are 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 I think what four different occasions where Frank feels that God intervened on his behalf. And by this point, he said he already felt that God was telling him he had a higher purpose. Now, I think everybody kind of believes that they're special, you know, and and that they have a special purpose in life, maybe. Um, But it really began to manifest in, in, in Amadeo. And his interests in high school or middle school were like we're talking about like like astrophysics to um, Star Trek, which he said he, he was a huge he was a Trekkie, um, and he went to school. Uh, by the time I think he was sixteen, he was on the radio. He was the president of the Young Republicans in Orlando, and so by the way, most of his story takes place in Orlando, which is perfectly fitting because it's where Disney World is. You've got Disney World, you've got Epcot, you've got all these theme parks, you've got Mickey Mouse, and it's just the insanity of Orlando just makes, to me, seems perfectly fitting for this for this whole story to play out. Uh, so Frank's in Orlando, and while in Orlando, um, he goes to school, he's, he's, he does a talk radio show uh, about politics. He's 16. He was helping to run the local... Uh, the local organization for the, um, well, obviously I said the, the Young Republicans, but for the Republican uh, committee in that area for Ronald Reagan's campaign. And, and this, you know, for a 16-year-old, like, that's just insanity. Uh, and, and so, anyway, he, so his big thing was, at this point, he starts telling people he's that God has told him he's going to be emperor of the world. And when I, I talked to him about that, I was like, okay, like, Frank, that's, like, you're telling people this. He goes, oh, yeah, you don't know. He said, everybody knew. Everybody knew it at school. People are calling him the emperor, you know, as they did, by the way, in prison. You know, I talked about prison in the last video and how he had built kind of a, a, a legal firm inside of prison. And people mocked him when he first got there. But after about two years, People had 100% respect for him. He's He would walk down. He We're talking about these are inmates. These are guys locked up for 20, 30 years. These are guys that are gang members. These are murderers. Um, these are, are big-time drug dealers, cartel members. And he's he would walk down the sidewalk with his little legal work and one or two of his guys behind him. And people are walking by, and they're like, Emperor. And he, he'd do this. He did, he did this little thing with his hand. Like, they go... Emperor, how you doing? Or they say Frank. A lot of times it's Frank or Emperor. They go, uh, Frank, he, hey, how are you? How are you? 
How are you? How are you? He had this little thing. It's not really like a hi, how Hitler type thing. It was just like a little tiny, a little thing with his hand. He, hey, how are you? How are you? The emperor, and uh, and so it was. It was hilarious. But so I can see that same type of thing happening in high school because he said a lot of this is during uh, segregation in the '60s, right? By this point, it's in the '60s, late '60s, uh, early '70s, and and there's there's kind of deseg. They're kind of uh, Segregation is it, desegregation is happening. Uh, there's blacks and whites in school. There are problems. He's negotiating uh, um, disputes among among the uh, the student body. He's he's very well, um, re- very respected. So he was so well respected at that. At, at, I think he was. So it's in like his junior year or something of high school or senior year. They had they actually had a, an emperor day. Where, where he said, like, he said, I pulled, he was like, I, I pulled up in a vehicle, got out, and he said that the ROTC squad was lined, and he walked in and gave, like, the, um, gave, like, a speech before the, uh, before the football, the big football game, and he gave, like, the, the, the speech, and, uh, and there was a huge, so this is in the arena with all these people screaming and hollering, and he gives a little, Ra 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 speech and the all the all the um, football players swarm onto the uh, swarm onto the field like I mean it's just it's just insanity uh, and, and you know and seeing the pictures of of him and hearing the stories and and knowing everything knowing uh, Frank being incarcerated with him like you can totally see this uh, so anyway he does that uh, he graduates high school graduates college then he goes to law school. Graduates law school as he he's he's simultaneously going to law school and trying to get a master's degree and his thesis. This is what's great. The thesis is called Capital Genesis. So he's writing his thesis, and it's called Capital Genesis. And Capital Genesis is Frank's economic plan for world domination. How he's going to start a massive company. And start gobbling up other companies in order to slowly take over countries and continents and ultimately the world. So I remember talking to him about this when he started explaining how uh, how Capital Genesis worked. And when I was talking to him, I was like, well, Frank, I don't like you're saying like this company does this and then this and they consolidate. And it really, honestly, it sounds like a, a it's a, almost like a form of fascism, like a form of, you know, saying it's it, I don't mean that, you know, it, fascism by definition isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like it it, it is, but it isn't. But so it's basically it, it it's kind of like one war, one company and all the companies work for that company. So it's like everybody works for and is singular in uh, in their belief. And it's just to generate money and grow. Um, so his his explanation of how the company worked, I, I remember telling him at one point, I said, this is, this is when I was writing the story. I said, you know, Frank, I mean, some companies aren't going to be willing to be bought out or taken over. Some countries, when you become so powerful, they will resist. Like, what do you do when you become, your company becomes so big, it becomes a monopoly? Well, what happens, typically what happens 
is the government comes in and says, look, your company's too big, it's too powerful, you have a monopoly, and they force you to break apart that company for um, the, the good of the country. That's how it works in the United States, not how it works everywhere. But, and I told him, I said, in some countries, he said, oh, no, no. He said, some countries will resist. And I, and I said, okay. I said, well, what happens if they resist? He said, well, he said, people will die. People will die. And I remember thinking, what does that mean? He said, well, I said, obviously, uh, there will have to be a military wing, a private military involved, and some countries will resist. And at that point, there may need to be military action. But I don't expect that it will come to that. Now, that's odd when you hear the rest of the story. You, you'll start to realize that that doesn't really isn't necessarily the way he was going. Um, anyway, he, he, so he's growing. It's his, he's growing. He goes to college. He goes, he gets his law degree. So Frank graduated and he entered Emory, uh, Emory university school of law. Eventually he's, he graduates the graduates the law school. However, during the, Toward the end of law school, he saw a uh, on there was a there were flyers that were going around, and there was a billboard, and somebody had made some flyers or something. They're passing it out, and he finds out he finds out that the CIA is um, is interviewing people to come work for the CIA. So he goes and he interviews for the CIA. He takes some tests. He said it was like an all-day thing. Like you had to take a bunch of tests. You had to take a physical test. And uh, he said, so I took them all. And, and he said, I didn't think much of it. And then a few days or weeks later, he, he, he ended up getting, like I don't go into this in the book. This is something he kind of told me on the side, was that he ended up getting a phone call from a roommate or something that said that a bunch of, and asking like, asking him if he was in trouble. And Frank was like, no, I'm not in trouble. What are you Like, I think that his roommate called his girlfriend's house. You keep in mind, there's no cell phone. So you're making calls, trying to find somebody calls him and says, Hey, are you in trouble? And, and he's like, no, why? And they said, because these government guys had stopped by their, their dorm room or apartment or whatever it was and said, look, there's a bunch of government agents that are here flashing badges and they're looking for you. So it really what it was was the CIA had sent guys out there and eventually so so he ends up going and, and they they find him or he goes to them and says, Hey, what's going on? And they say, Look, we want you to come back in and take some more tests. He goes back in, he takes some more tests, and he said a few weeks later, um, they show up and they say, Look, we want you to come work for their I forget, it was like the 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 strategic administration whatever wing of the CIA and he and it would have been he said basically he said the guy was like it would basically be like special ops like you would be in the field helping run special operations or possibly be an an agent like an undercover agent kind of thing or spy or whatever you want to call them you know in the field what's interesting about this is that I actually while writing the book, I actually interviewed a guy named Andrew Bustamante, which is actually huge now. Like he's, I interviewed him and then I got Danny with concrete to, 
actually get him on there. So Bustamante has been on concrete a bunch of, he's been on a ton. He's been on, he was on Les, Lex Freeman. Like he went like, I convinced Dan, Dan didn't even want to have him on. Anyway, the point is, is that Bustamante, which is a former CIA agent, read the whole book and was like, oh, absolutely. He said it, that the, the CIA is huge, used to be huge in, con, in recruiting from, uh, from law schools. So Frank says he was supposed to go to become be a CIA, and he totally planned on doing the CIA thing. Like he'd signed up, he'd signed the papers, he's ready to go. He just had to graduate law school, and just as he was graduating law school, Frank's father came down with um, throat cancer, and so Frank had to tell the CIA he couldn't do, he couldn't go because he needed to come home. And move back in with his family so that he could work and help support his father who was going through multiple treatments for throat cancer. And so as a result, he did not become a CIA agent. Buried by the U.S. government and ignored by the national media, this is the story they don't want you to know. When Frank Amadeo met with President George W. Bush at the White House to discuss NATO operations in Afghanistan, no one knew that he'd already embezzled nearly $200 million from the federal government, money he intended to use to bankroll his plan to take over the world. From Amadeo's global headquarters in the shadow of Florida's Disney World, with a nearly inexhaustible supply of the Internal Revenue Service's funds, Amadeo acquired multiple businesses, amassing a mega conglomerate. Driven by his delusions of world conquest, he negotiated the purchase of a squadron of American fighter jets and the controlling interest in a former Soviet ICBM factory. He began work to build the largest private militia on the planet, over one million Africans strong. Simultaneously, Amadeo hired an international black ops force to orchestrate a coup in the Congo while plotting to take over several small Eastern European countries. The most disturbing part of it all is, had the U.S. government not thwarted his plans, he might have just pulled it off. It's insanity. The bizarre, true story of a bipolar megalomaniac's insane plan for total world domination. Available now on Amazon and Audible. So Frank lives with his father and works, you know, for a while. Uh, and, and, you know, ultimately... It takes a while, but ultimately his, his, you know, and this goes on for a few years, you know, with Frank's father, you know, there's actually a lawsuit where, um, they end up suing the, uh, they end up suing the tobacco company and he gets a huge settlement and all kinds of stuff happens. Uh, well, I mean, according to Frank, actually, if you look it up, there's, there's actual, there's actually articles about Frank's dad in this law this lawsuit. Let's jump back real quick to being with me being in prison, right? And I'm writing the story. And Frank's still fighting my case. So Frank's fighting my case. I've got 26 years. Um, he's doing the he's doing my law work. Like this is how, like I said, this is in the earlier video. This is how I met him. Was he started fighting my case? Well, at this point, I'm in prison with Frank, and he's fighting my case. And um, we had filed a motion. He he uh, we. He, Frank had filed a motion in the court. I'd given him all my stuff. He filed a motion in the court, uh, essentially telling, saying to the government or saying to the the court, Mr. Cox has a 26-year sentence, but he was asked by the government to 
to be interviewed by Dateline. He was asked to be interviewed by American Greed. He was asked to be interviewed uh, or to write an ethics and fraud course. And that every time the government asked him to do something, which he was told if he did this, it would affect his sentence. It would reduce his sentence. Even though the government did not abide by that reduction or by what the, by their promises, Mr. Cox was told it would, and therefore, Mr. Cox's belief, and based on the government's request, it reset the time bar. So, inmates have one year to file what's called a 2255, right? Like a habeas motion, a motion saying I want to be set free or I want to correct my sentence or my lawyer is ineffective, whatever the case may be. There's an issue with my sentencing. I need it corrected. You have one year. Well, it'd been way over a year for me. And so the government, so what happens is it's hard to get past that. Typically the government, all they have to say is, you know what? The defendant has a, is correct. We should have done this. This should have happened. All of these things sort of affected him. But you know what, Your Honor? He's time barred. He can't bring any of these things up. And that's it. It's over. Doesn't matter if they get new DNA, if they find out you're innocent. Somebody else says, I did it. I committed the crime. He's, it doesn't matter. He's time barred. There's nothing he can do. So you have to get over that time bar. You have to convince the, the judge in your case to say, now, you know what? I'm going to let him get past the time bar. So we go back, Frank goes back with a motion saying, look, every time they asked Mr. Cox to do something that was going to affect his sentence and he did it, it resets the time bar. And he's been asked over and over again. So there's three different instances here that affected the time bar. So he has within one year of the last, of the last instant. And it was just been a year since my last time. So he files that motion the government comes back and the government says, Your Honor, he's time barred. And Frank then argued again, uh, put in a motion, a retort to their, to the government's motion. And we end up going back and forth. And this, these things take months and months. But ultimately what happened was the government came forward and said, Listen, we would like to stop the proceedings. And we'd like to give Mr. Cox, have the court, give Mr. Cox an attorney to discuss the possibility of us reducing his sentence, putting in what's called a rule 35 motion on his behalf. So I remember when I got that, that letter, like I read it and I was like, I didn't even understand what it meant. Like I was reading it. Like, is it, are they saying they're going to reduce my sentence? But what they were really saying was like, we'll consider possibly thinking about it, but they can't talk to me. The government can't write me a letter. So what the government can do is they can tell the judge and the judge can then give me a lawyer. And so what was really happening was they were just, had just assigned me a lawyer to, to discuss the possibility of filing something on my behalf. Well, what happens is that lawyer's name was, uh, was Esther, Esther Panich. And she flies down from Atlanta and she meets with me in the, the uh, it's in the visitation room, but it's the, it's the lawyer you know, lawyer, inmate, the lawyer room, whatever you meet with this in this little room, small little uh, conference room. So I remember she came down and she sat down and I said, Hey, so what's going on? You're, she's like, I'm your lawyer. 
they, uh, the judge assigned me and um, the government is willing to reduce your sentence. And I said, yeah, that's great. But by how much? And she said one level. One level was 30 months. So I went, so I got 26 years and the government is willing to take, to drop it to not even 23 because it was 26 years and four months. So it was really 24. So I would go from 26 to 24 years. I'd have roughly 24 years. And I was like, now I'd already talked to, to, to Frank Amadeo about this. And I went, no, no. I said, Frank said to tell you I wouldn't accept less than four levels. And she said, who's Frank? And I go, well, Frank's the guy that did my legal work. She says, oh, you didn't do it? I said, no, no, no. She said, well, it's very well written. I just don't think you have a chance. She says, so he obviously knows how it's well written. She says, it's just not going to work. And I said, yeah, I understand it's, you're saying it's not going to work. But I said, if I, I don't think that's true. She says, well, trust me, I've been doing this for a long time and I know it's not going to work. I go, so she said, that, and I said, you know, well, you're saying it's not going to work and the government thinks it's not going to work. She goes, exactly. I said, then why are you here? Like if the government could beat me so easily and it was a slam dunk on their part, why did they get the judge to to give me a lawyer and have you and pay to fly you down here to talk with me if it, if they could beat me so easily and she went well you know I don't I don't know that's that is strange and I, she and I said so I said okay so listen Frank said this and I tell her what Frank said Frank said that um, I would take four levels. And I said, so if they're not willing to give me four levels, then we need to move for an evidentiary hearing, which means you schedule a hearing where you get to present evidence. And she went, okay, well, what kind of evidence would you present? I said, I want to bring all the FBI agents in, all the Secret Service agents in. I want to bring in my U.S. attorney. I want to bring in, and I want to, I want to see all my discovery. Now, I have a room full of discovery that was never processed because I pled guilty. So I said, I want to see all of it. I want it processed, turned into, uh, and I want it converted and I want it shipped here at the government's expense. You know, this that would be thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And she goes, what do you want to do? Turn this into a circus? And I go, that's exactly what I want to do. So they can, we can bring all these people in front of the court. We can drag this thing out for a couple of days and we can see all that evidence or they can give me four levels. She says, let me think. She says, okay, let me go back to the government. So she goes back. Well, first what happens is she goes, whose strategy is this? And I go, this is Frank's strategy. And she goes, well, how, who is Frank? And I go, Frank is a disbarred attorney with mental problems who is is actually been deemed incompetent by the state of Florida. He actually has like a, a caretaker in the state of Florida. And I said, and he's an inmate here and he got 22 years for um, trying to take over the world. And she goes, are you serious? And I said, yeah, his name's Frank Amadeo and he's, he's mentally, he's mentally incompetent. And she goes, this is who's doing your, your legal work. And I went, yeah, this is who's doing my legal work. And I went, and she said, you've got a mentally incompetent inmate disbarred attorney doing your legal work. And I went, yeah. She said, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I said, well, it does seem crazy. I said, but you're here, aren't you? I said, all of the sane attorneys that I talked to on the street told me I could not force the government to reduce my sentence. 
and yet you're here. So he may be crazy, but he's getting results. And you're saying 30 months, and he's, you're saying one level, he's saying four. So let's see if we can get four. So she goes back to the government, goes back to Atlanta, goes to the um, U.S. attorney, Gail McKenzie, and says, Gail, he said four levels. So we start negotiating back and forth, back and forth. I say, I want a copy of this. I want a copy of that. I want my discovery. I want this. So we're going back and forth, back and forth. And finally, first they come back and they go, okay, two levels. We'll give you two levels. And I say, no, I want to go back to it. So we go back and forth. And she ends up saying, they they won't go more than like two levels. And I said, okay, well then I'm I need to gotta go back to court. So well what she said was she said, here's what, what they're willing to do. They're willing to give you one level and bring you back to court. Because it was like they were gonna give me like two levels and I didn't get to go back to court. They just put it in. Two levels was like fifty months or fifty no, not even fifty months. What am I talking about? Yeah, two levels was like 52 or 53 months, something like that. So I said, no, 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 no. And they said, or they put in one level and they'll bring you back to court and we can argue in front of the judge. I said, okay, let's do that. So I asked Frank about it and Frank said, yeah, go back in front of the judge. So they get put me on a bus. They ship me all the way back to, um, back to Atlanta. I get in front of the judge. The FBI agent comes in. She testifies for me. Jim Montrum, the guy I wrote that course with, he testifies for me. My old attorney, um, uh, my old attorney Millie testifies for me. And the judge looks at everything and he says, "Okay." This was so funny too because I remember the judge goes. He looked at the, he looked at the government. Well, no, he looked at me. No, he looked at the government and he goes. The government is asking for a 30-month reduction. He goes, that's not nearly enough for what Mr. Cox has done. And I thought, that's, wow, okay, great. We had asked for like, God, like a ridiculous reduction. We asked for like, I forget what it was, like seven levels off, which is basically like I would have, I would have walked out of prison practically. Um, he said, Mr. Cox is asking for... Um, a seven level reduction, which essentially was like 15 or 16 years off. He is, which is 15 years off. He said, Mr. Cox, he goes, that was never going to happen. And I, <laughs> I was like, wow. I was like, Ooh. And he said, so what I've decided is I'm going to give you three months off. That's seven years off your sentence. He said, for someone who has a case that has no arrests associated with it. Nobody was indicted or arrested based on the information that you gave. He said, as a res he said, for you to get seven years off for that, he said, for, for no, he said, for cooperation, which only, only really uh, was uh, media and uh, writing a course. He said, I think that's a, that's basically said, I think that's a deal. Uh, it said something along those lines. And he rambled it off really quick. He said, that's my decision. And boom. He hit the gavel and that was it. It was over. I got seven years off. I remember leaving when I was leaving the courthouse. Um, I remember thinking I was so depressed. 
so depressed because I really thought I was going to get, I don't know. I thought I was really, I thought I was going to get 10, 12 years. I forget what it was, but I, I really kind of felt like he might give me the whole huge amount that we were asking. Really, I was delusional. So he, uh, uh, so anyway, I remember leaving. They had held that, uh, the, there was bit renovations being done and they'd actually held that whole thing in a small town close to Atlanta at a, at a federal, at a courthouse close to there. And so when they led me out, it wasn't in this massive building in doubt, which is in downtown, the federal building in downtown Atlanta. It was in a smaller one. So you actually get let out by the marshals into the van where it's not like a huge van. It's just me. And I'm like shackled and I'm being walking out with my, my legs are shackled and I'm walking out. And I, I literally it was so funny too, because you want to talk about hilarious. Like they had to stop people on the street. People are like, there's like 20 people standing here and people standing here and they're st- as they walk me out with shotguns. <laughs> like, you don't need a shotgun, bro. You could have simply, <laughs> you could have walked me out without anything. I'm not going anywhere. And they walk me out. And as I'm walking out, I remember looking across the street and seeing Millie, my original lawyer, who just testified. And I remember her looking at me and just kind of like, she's sitting in her car, right? So I'm in the, right there. Like her car's like, it's just across the street. It's maybe 50 feet away, 40 feet away. And I look at her and we look right in each other's eyes. And she gave me this look like, like, like she's so sorry. Like she's sorry it wasn't more. And I looked at her and I went, eh, like that. And she just, <laughs> and I got in the thing. I was like, eh, it is what it is. So I was depressed. I remember on my way driving back to, uh, they were holding me in, um, in, in the Atlanta prison, right? The, so it, they have a hold over there. So I'm on the way back. I remember being depressed, but by the time I actually got back, I thought, you know, like you've already done like six years in prison at this rate with, with a red, with the sentence reduction, with good time, with maybe a year off for the drug program. I thought you could be out of here in seven or eight years. And I thought, you know, you just did six years. You can do seven. You didn't think you could do six. You've done six. It's not so bad. And I thought, no, no, at that point, I think I'd done seven, seven years. So I was like, you just did seven years. You can do seven or eight more years. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's not bad. That's not bad. So I get back. They put me on a bus a week later. Ship me back to Coleman. I go to Frank. And when I went to Frank, he had already heard. He already knew how much time I got off. I go to Frank and I walk up to him that night. Like, cause you know, you get in, they process you, you go to count, count. They, they count everybody at four o'clock. So you stand in front of me. I'm walking and I'm in my bus clothes. Like it's just like you're starting over. I'm in my butt. They walk around, they count. Then you go to dinner. So right after dinner, I go and I find Frank and I walk up to Frank and I go, Hey Frank. And he goes, Hey Matt, I heard, I heard. And he just looked at me and I went, yeah. I said, you know, it was seven years off. And he goes, yep. And I went, it's not that I'm not appreciative. I said, I just, you know, I I I was hoping it was more. He said, I know I was hoping it was more too. And he looked at me and he said, it looks like we're going to have to eat this elephant one spoonful at a time. He is something will come up. Keep your eyes. He goes, keep your eyes open and your ears open and something will happen. 
He said, this isn't it for you. Something else is going to happen. We'll get some more time off. And I was just like, like I, you know, once again, I thought this guy's crazy. Like that's, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. Next time we're going to get into Frank. When Frank, um, starts basically, uh, starts working, starts putting together his, his mega company. He becomes a venture capitalist, does a bunch of stuff. Super interesting, uh, video. And uh, we're going to get into all that in the next video. Uh, really interesting. I appreciate you guys watching and letting me kind of go through the intricacy of the things that happened with Frank and I when we were when I was in, we were incarcerated together. I, I think that's an important important part of the story because it lets you really kind of know the person that he is and how much he did for me. I appreciate this. Appreciate you guys watching. Absolutely, check out the next video. And thank you very much for watching. If you if you liked the the video, you you would love the book. I'm gonna pitch the book real quick. Here is the book. It's it's insanity. It's also on Audible. It's on um, it's on Amazon. Check it out. The links are in the description. Thank you. See ya.